The Irish playwright Samuel Beckett was notoriously protective of his work. Best known for Waiting for Godot, Beckett's works are popular and are frequently produced. Because of the, the lit theories taught in college theater departments starting in around the, the mid-20th century, authorial intent isn't important for most theater artists. So when theaters produce Beckett's work, they frequently take postmodern liberties with the text and the interpretation. Beckett hated that. In fact, if he heard that a theater was messing even just a little with his play, he would have the production rights pulled. If you didn't do his play the way Samuel Beckett intended, he believed that you didn't have a right to his work. Now, think about this. If one of postmodernism's most revered writers was not happy when people tried to impose their own meaning onto his stories and then took action to stop them, imagine the response of the creator of the universe when people mess with his true story. And this is what we're going to look at this morning in 2 Peter chapter 2. God's response to those who twist his words. Throughout 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter has been stressing the importance of godliness, virtuous moral living as defined by God, how true relational knowledge of Jesus changes us through the power of the Holy Spirit, we, we grow in godliness and the trustworthiness of Scripture. And he's been doing this because false teachers have been twisting the gospel of Jesus Christ, denying the importance of godly living, and scoffing at the notion of God's judgment. It's interesting how, how Peter has set up his polemic here in chapter 2. Instead of directly launching into his attack on false teachers, in chapter 1, Peter reminds us of what's true. He's reassuring us that the gospel matters because Jesus is coming back and will richly reward those who have true salvific knowledge of him. And before moving into chapter 2, he defends he and the other apostles' authority to proclaim the gospel. Peter walked and talked with Jesus. Peter was at the transfiguration where he saw a glimpse of Jesus in his eternal power and glory. He and the other apostles are not making any of this up. They're not the ones following cleverly devised myths. But what about the, the people that occupy space opposite Peter, the antagonists of this letter? And that's where we're at this morning. And we're going to look at chapter 2 under three headings. The presence of false teachers, the punishment of false teachers, and the pattern of false teachers. So our first point, the presence of false teachers. And please follow along as I read 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. If you haven't already found it, that passage is on page 1018 in the Pew Bibles. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Please follow along as I read. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Transitioning from chapter 1, Peter is reminding us that false prophets and teachers exist, and we need to be aware of them. If, if we assume that everyone who claims to be a Christian speaks correctly about the Word of God, we're dangerously naive. And false prophets and teachers aren't a new phenomenon. Not today, and not in the first century when Peter wrote this letter. Peter tells us that false prophets were around long before he arrived on the scene. 
As Peter alludes to, the, the Old Testament is replete with warnings about false prophets and examples of how they misled God's people, wreaking havoc. Citing just one example, 1 King 22 tells how King Ahab of Israel and King Jehoshaphat of Judah made an alliance to fight against Syria. Before heading out to battle, Jehoshaphat says in verse 5 of 1 Kings 22, Inquire first for the word of the Lord. He wanted to know what God had to say about their planned attack. The prophets are called, and they falsely prophesy a great victory. Well, one prophet, Micaiah, faithfully prophesies that the planned attack will lead to defeat and the death of King Ahab. Ahab has Micaiah thrown into prison, and they head off to battle, choosing to believe the false prophets while ignoring the word of God. Guess what happened? They were routed by the Syrians, and Ahab was killed. According to verse 38, the dogs licked up his blood, and the prostitutes washed themselves in it. Quite graphic. In 2 Peter 2.1, by pointing to false prophets of the past, Peter is reminding us that this isn't a game. The people of God are not to entertain false prophets or their teachings because they bring destruction. And false prophets and teachers aren't lone operators. They are connected to and working for the very first false prophet. So, so keeping your place in 2 Peter, please turn to Genesis 3. That's page 2 in the, in the Pew Bibles. Right at the beginning of God's story, Genesis 3. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. Genesis 3, verses 1 through 5. Please follow along. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. As the first false prophet, serpent Satan perverted God's words. And that's what false teachers do. False teachers, whether from yesterday, today, or tomorrow, are actively trying to wreak havoc among God's people. Taking their cue from their father, the devil, false teachers slyly twist and change God's words. They distort the Bible's teachings. The middle of 2 Peter 2, verse 1 says, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. At the beginning of God's story, what did the first false teacher bring with him? Death. Serpent Satan's heresy, his twisting of God's word, introduced sin and death into the world. Destruction. And this is why this is important to Peter. This is why in verse 12 of chapter 1, he says that he's not going to stop reminding God's people of the truth because God's words bring life. The distortion of God's words brings death. Brothers and sisters, false teachers are no small matter. It's not being loving and gracious to ignore them or to treat them with kid gloves. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, didn't flee from the first false teacher. And I'm afraid that many of us entertain the teachings of false teachers in our hearts and minds because, well, they have some good things to say about homeschooling or whatever. False teachers are not to be trifled with. 
I must confess, I told the other elders at our last meeting, I didn't want to preach this passage. I said, I want to preach a nice psalm, something uplifting and joyful. But by God's grace, as I prayed over 2 Peter 2 and studied it, especially these last two weeks, I was confronted with how important this is. False teaching brings destruction. The pastors here are going to answer to God one day for how we shepherd you, the members of ABC. Out of love for you all, we can't shy away from speaking hard things from this pulpit. Our desire is to see you safely enter the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And not just the elders, the members of Arlington Baptist Church have covenanted together to walk together in brotherly love as becomes the members of a Christian church. Exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. We can't afford to be less passionate about guarding ourselves and each other from false teachers than Peter was. Heresies bring destruction. Now look again at the end of verse 1. Even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. That's a heavy statement, right? Verse 1 makes clear that the false teachers Peter is talking about didn't come from outside the church, but from inside. Does this mean that Peter is teaching that genuine Christians can lose their salvation? In short, no. Genuine Christians cannot and will not lose their salvation. But what are we to do with tough passages like 2 Peter 2.1? Well, we look at the entire context, which is the story of the Bible. The entire Bible is the context for every passage in it. And we allow the Bible to interpret and synthesize tough passages. We also submit the less clear passages to the light of the clearer passages. Let's briefly look at some of the passages in the Bible that very, very clearly teach preserving grace, or as it's often called, eternal security. I'll then argue that the verses that clearly teach that genuine Christians cannot lose their salvation fits seamlessly into the story of the Bible. At that point, we should be able to solve the interpretive riddle found in 2 Peter 2.1. So, the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians 1.6 that I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul is 100% confident that the salvation of those who are placing their faith in Jesus will be completed. Romans 8, 38-39 tells us, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Once you're adopted into God's family through faith in Jesus, nothing will be able to separate you from God's love. And Jesus makes this clear in John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hands. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Those whom God the Father has given to God the Son cannot and will not lose their salvation. And genuine faith is evidenced by our continued belief in Jesus Christ. So, so how do these verses fit into God's story? And this illustrates why it's incredibly important to be reading our Bibles from cover to cover, over and over and over. 
We need to wash ourselves in the entire story of the Bible. If, if we don't know the entire story, we're going to have a hard time inserting smaller sections into their proper context. And hence, a harder time correctly interpreting the passage. So in God's true story, there are only two types of humans. God's people and not God's people. And one of the things we learn is that not everyone who looks like God's people is truly one of God's people. We already looked at some. The, the false prophets who falsely prophesied victory for Ahab and Jehoshaphat. Those false prophets were part of Israel. From all appearances, they were God's people. Yet it turns out, they weren't. Going back even further, it's revealed that the seed of the serpent is sown throughout God's people, tempting them to doubt God's word and bringing destruction. Throughout the story of the nation of Israel, figures pop up who pervert God's word and lead God's people to destruction and to, and to sin. Last week in Deuteronomy 11, we, be, we met Nathan, Dathan and Abram who rebelled against God and attempted to mislead God's people. God destroyed them. They were not God's people, though they looked and sounded like it and claimed to be. In the New Testament, one of Jesus' own disciples, one of his 12 closest followers, turned out to not be a disciple. Judas Iscariot. Prior to Judas' betrayal of his master, everyone believed that he was a faithful follower of Jesus. In God's true story, not everyone who claims to be one of God's people is truly a child of God. We see this truth in Jesus' statement recorded in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers. And the parable of the soils is instructive for us. With the parable, Jesus is telling us there will, be a time, there will be times when the seed of God's word will appear to be producing fruit, but will eventually be revealed to have not taken root. Many of us can experientially connect with this truth. I have a family member who, from all external appearances, seemed to be a true follower of Jesus. He was a... He was a staff member and a leader in a gospel-preaching church and even shared the gospel with me more than once while I was still dead in my sins. Yet one day he walked away, demonstrating that his profession of faith was not genuine. He had tasted of God's goodness, claimed it as his own, and then rejected it. In situations like that, and I know that others here have similar stories, we find ourselves unsettled, taken aback. We puzzle, wait... But I was sure that he was a true Christian. And yet he's not. Not everyone who claims to be part of God's family is a part of God's family. And if we insert 2 Peter 2 into that context, we're given a solution. The book, The Doctrines of Grace, which is in the book nook, explains in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, the best approach is to think of this as describing what these unbelieving teachers claimed rather than what they actually received from Jesus. As we continue in 2 Peter 2, we learn that these false teachers had tasted of the goodness of living godly lives, of living as one of God's people. But the chapter ends by saying, what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. 
By their actions and their twisting of God's word, false teachers proved that their profession of faith was a lie. Like Judas Iscariot, they deny the one they call master. We should continue with our text. So briefly, the end of verse 1 through verse 3 reminds us that the end of false teachers is destruction. That they will tempt many to ignore the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And let's not gloss over that word many in verse 2. And many will follow their sensuality. Peter is warning us to expect that false teachers will have a large impact. Let's not kid ourselves. Our church family is not immune to the dangerous effects of false teachers. This is one of the reasons why it's important that the congregation hold those of us who preach accountable. If we preach something other than the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we twist and pervert God's words, the members of ABC have a responsibility to hold us accountable. And frankly, it's going to be difficult to do that if you don't love and know God's word. And knowing God's word is also how you can help protect yourself from false teachers. Read the Bible and study the Bible. And those are two separate things. Read and study. Do them both. In verse 3, Peter uses the word exploit. False teachers take advantage of people's selfish desires and lack of knowledge. This is why chapter 1 emphasizes true knowledge of Jesus. A relationship that results in godly living. It's only in Christ that we become godly and gain entrance into his eternal kingdom and escape God's judgment. And the end of verse 3 leaves no room for doubt about God's judgment on the false prophets and teachers. The phrase Peter uses, their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep, is a colorful way of saying that God is not letting their rebellion slide. In fact, he's had their punishment planned and ready from the very beginning. And that brings us to our second point. The punishment of false teachers. So please follow along as I read 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-9. through 9. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when He brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment Until the day of judgment. One of the things that Peter points out is that history tells us that God's judgment is certain. In this short section, Peter references three historical events with catastrophic consequences for those who rebelled against God. Directly on the heels of his warning that false prophets and teachers are facing destruction and are looking to drag others down with them, Peter reminds us that. God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell. And then he follows that with references to the flood in Sodom and Gomorrah. Finishing his thought in verse 9, he says, Then the Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. On what basis does anyone think the false teachers of today can escape God's wrath? 
God's wrath came down on the rebellious angels. It, it came down on the whole earth in the form of a flood. And fire fell from heaven and destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah as an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. If you want to know if God judges the wicked, look backwards into history. One of the heresies being taught by many false teachers of today is called universalism. That there is no judgment and everyone is saved. They couch their teaching in words like love and mercy, completely ignoring words like holiness and justice. And to teach universalism, the false teachers have to completely ignore Second Peter as well as the rest of the Bible. In fact, that's what they do. I, I don't know of anyone teaching universalism that believes the entire Bible is true. The parts they don't like, the parts of the Bible that contradict their teaching, they claim are nothing but allegories. And there's a point of application for us here. The Bible takes itself seriously. By that I'm, I mean the Bible believes that the stories in it are true. As should we. Peter is not ashamed to admit to believing that the flood in Noah's ark actually happened. He's not embarrassed to say that fire and sulfur literally came down from heaven and destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Likewise, we shouldn't be embarrassed or ashamed to say that we believe that the Bible stories literally happened. And because the Bible is a true story, Peter is encouraging us to look back at God's judgment in history if we doubt that false teachers are going to incur God's wrath. The rebellious angels, the flood, and Sodom and Gomorrah tell us that God's punishment is sure. However, Another important thing we learn from these verses is that God protects His own. Verse 9 also says that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Last Sunday, Mike mentioned that in many of the Psalms we'll find the, the saints of old suffering and crying out to God because the wicked are prospering. And so the Bible teaches us that God's people will enjoy God's blessings for all eternity. God is saving His people from sin and death and decay. The wicked who appear to prosper are headed for an eternity of death, decay, and torment, destruction. And we can echo the psalmist and ask why the wicked in our day prosper. Those who preach and teach heresies often have large followings. Their books sit atop the bestsellers list and they get gushing documentaries about them screened at cons. Our society esteems false teachers while disdaining the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter's words here in 2 Peter 2, verses 4-10 through 10 apply to us in reference to God rescuing His own. So let's look at Peter's words. Verse 5 reminds us that God preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when He brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And here's an, here's an important point of application. Leading up to the flood, God had eight people who were His. Eight people. And yet, surrounded by wickedness and mockery, Noah faithfully preached the salvation of the one true God. You may feel all alone in your office or neighborhood or even family, but don't allow that to stop you from proclaiming the gospel to those whom the Holy Spirit has placed in your life. Verse 7 reminds us that God rescued righteous Lot. That the godly are often in the minority, but our salvation is secure. In the face of societal pressure, it can be tempting to let go of the true gospel and join the throngs who are slyly perverting the word of God and who scorn those who desire to be faithful to God's words. But brothers and sisters, don't let go of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
By doing so, you'll, you'll give evidence that your faith is not genuine, that you are not God's, and that you are under God's wrath. The large crowds, the pop cultural relevance, and the best-selling books are not going to provide any relief when God's wrath comes down on false teachers. And whatever esteem you garner from those who mock the gospel of Jesus Christ as being narrow-minded and out of step with current sociological and cultural trends, that esteem will be of no comfort to you when you are in hell. I find the last half of verse 7 and verse 8 a fascinating addendum to the story of Lot. Divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit, Peter tells us that Lot was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Look, Lot should not have been living there. And borrowing the words of one writer, Lot was not a paragon of virtue. So so what are we to make of Peter's description of Lot as a righteous man? Well, the answer is found in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the things that should happen while reading the Old Testament is the continuing realization that each new character introduced, true characters who actually lived, cannot be the promised seed from Genesis 3.15 because the Old Testament saints were quite sinful, as are we. By God's grace, our righteousness is dependent on that promised seed. And so for those of you here this morning wondering how sinful humans can be counted as righteous, and spared God's judgment, Lot is instructive for you. Lot was a sinner. Yes, a great sinner. All humans are sinners. You, me, the people sitting beside you. All sinners. And sin deserves death because our Creator God is holy and deserves and demands perfect obedience, sinlessness. The problem is that none of us can do that. None of us are able to perfectly obey God. In His grace and mercy... God sent His only Son, Jesus, to obey for us. During His entire life on earth, Jesus never sinned. He perfectly obeyed the Father. And then, because He loved those whom the Father had given Him so much, He died on the cross as the punishment for the sins of those who placed their faith in Him. Three days later, Jesus rose from the grave, vindicating His claim to be the Son of God. By repenting of your sins and placing your faith in the life of death and resurrection of Jesus Christ like Lot you will have Christ's righteousness accounted to you and the deserved punishment for your sins will have been nailed to the cross if you have yet to do that if you you are still under God's wrath I urge you to repent and place your faith in Jesus don't wait because like in Noah's day and in Lot's day God's wrath is going to be swift and final If you want to know more about what it means to place your faith in Jesus, please find me after the service. And Christian, there's an application here for you too. Like Lot, are you greatly distressed by the sin around you? Or do you invite it into your home and mind without feeling any torment in your soul, your thought life, your entertainment options? Are you bothered by sin or do you laugh at it? Bringing it back to false teachers... Do you engage through books, social media, TV, blogs, whatever, false teachers without being distressed by their blasphemy and growing apostasy? If not, if your soul is not tormented by either sin or false teaching around you, and sin and false teaching is always around us because we live in a sinful world, 
If you're not tormented by sin and false teaching, I would encourage you to study the Bible focusing on the holiness of God and His response to sin and false teaching. If your soul is tormented, then I think that raises the question as to why you've invited it into your life. As opposed to the sin and false teaching that is constantly around us, I'm speaking specifically of that that you've willfully brought into your life through TV, books, activities, etc. Like Lot, why would you deliberately torment your soul? For the sake of what? For some entertainment? The Bible declares that Lot was a righteous man, but his life and actions and the people around him were negatively affected by the sin around him. Don't be so arrogant as to believe that you're immune to sin and sin's effects. Sin is serious and dangerous. Look, the end of verse 9 is troubling, especially for those willfully engaging in sin on a consistent basis. Most scholars believe that the phrase, keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, is referring to the same thing that Paul teaches in Romans 1. In the section about God's wrath on the unrighteous, Paul writes in Romans 1.26, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. What Peter is saying in verse 9 of our text is that part of God's punishment is giving the unrighteous what they want. God doesn't restrain their sin and lust. By allowing, their unrighteous, by allowing the unrighteous to have what they want, God is letting them walk freely into His wrath at the final judgment. This brings us to our third and final point. The pattern of false teachers. The first half of verse 10 says, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Peter has singled out two characteristics of false teachers. Sexual sin and the rejection of God's authority. Sensuality and arrogance. Starting with the last half of verse 10 and going through verse 13, Peter highlights the false teacher's arrogance. In verses 10 and 11, Peter gives us this stark picture. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. What are we to make of that? And I think the key is understanding what Peter means by glorious ones. The Greek word literally translates glories and is used in Scripture to refer to angels at times and at other times to human rulers. Considering the context, especially verse 11's connection to Jude 8 and 9, where the archangel Michael refuses to pronounce a blasphemous judgment over the devil, most conservative scholars believe that glorious ones refer to angels, specifically fallen angels because of the contrast to holy angels in verse 11. But even with the who, the why remains. As in, why is it arrogant, bold and willful, for false teachers to blaspheme fallen angels? Well, as we think back over Peter's letter, one of the things highlighted is the false teacher's rejection of God's judgment. And we've already had a mention of fallen angels in chapter 2. Look back at verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell. So, so Peter is saying, look, God's judgment on the fallen angels tells us that the thing that the false teachers are scoffing at is a sure thing. Jesus is coming back to judge the wicked. With that in mind, I think we can interpret verses 10 and 11 as Peter claiming that the false teacher's presumptuous arrogance causes them to deny that fallen angels, specifically the devil, exist. They laugh at the notion that Satan and his demons are influencing them. And they arrogantly laugh 
because they refuse to submit to the authority of God's word. I mean, if there is no coming judgment, then the Bible's teachings and warnings about the devil don't make any sense. And if there is no coming judgment, then it doesn't matter how we live. God's commands to live godly lives can be ignored if the false teachers are correct. And ignoring God's command to live godly lives is exactly what false teachers do. Transitioning into his list of the false teachers' sins, Peter is warning that their rebellious scoffing leads to a slide into moral degradation, which in turn leads to their destruction. Please follow along as I read verse 12 and the first half of verse 13. For these, the false teachers, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. Now, and this is important because it's easy to lose sight of Peter's focus here. So I want to point out at the onset that the emphasis is on the born to be caught and destroyed and will also be destroyed in their destruction. Peter is using this comparison to animals to hammer home that no matter what the false teachers teach and believe, their end will be destruction. So, so yes, the, the, there are points of comparison between false teachers' ignorance and immorality and how irrational animals act on instinct, but that's not Peter's point. In the next few verses, Peter lays bare the false teacher's depravity. But his point here is to reiterate that those who rebel against God will not escape his wrath, just like animals that are hunted are killed. Verse 13 ends by reminding us that the wages of sin is death, a theme that is through the entire Bible, from the beginning to the end. The false teachers and those who are led astray by them earn a wage for their wrongdoing. And that wage is God's wrath. And I want to pause and encourage those who are placing their faith in Jesus to not shy away from warning your unbelieving friends and family about God's wrath. Of course, there are inappropriate ways to do this. And I, and I understand the desire to emphasize God's love and mercy. But here's the thing. In His love and mercy, God warns us that if we don't repent and turn to Him through faith in Jesus, we'll suffer His wrath. In His love and mercy, God says, turn to me in repentance and faith, and my righteous judgment won't fall on you. Shouldn't we model our soul-winning efforts after the Bible and not current church growth trends or society's emphasis on comfort and self-affirmation? I mean, commissioned by God, Jonah preached God's anger to the Ninevites and urged repentance. The prophets preached God's judgment and urged repentance. Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom is at hand. And don't be fooled by false teachers. The kingdom of God brings with it judgment for those who cling to their rebellion against their creator. Don't be afraid to be labeled a hellfire and brimstone preacher because most of the people in the Bible, including Jesus, would earn that label today. It's unloving and selfish to not tell our friends and family members about God's coming wrathful judgment. And it's also not unloving to point out the sinfulness of certain lifestyles as you warn people about God's judgment. Peter does just that with the rest of the chapter. Specifically, he's warning us how to recognize false teachers by their lifestyle, their sensuality, the lust of defiling passion, passion from verse 10. Please follow along as I read the last half of verse 13 through verse 16. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. 
They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. It's not difficult to see today's false teachers in these verses, right? I mean, one of the first things often jettisoned by today's false teachers is God's parameters for sexuality. Look at the beginning of verse 14. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. To satisfy their lust, they satisfy their lust, leading them to embrace more and more aberrant sexual practices. I don't think it's necessary for me to draw up the parallels that exist today. For most of us here, it's, it's probably pretty self-evident. But I will say this. The pattern today is almost always, and, and I don't know of any exceptions, the pattern today is that the denial of God's judgment, most often articulated in the heresy called universalism, is linked to acceptance of things like same-sex marriage and transgenderism. So whenever anyone comes out as a universalist, it's basically a given that one of their next steps will be an embrace of the sexual revolution's rebellious ethics. Likewise, whenever someone, a blogger, whoever, comes out in support of things like same-sex marriage, it's inevitable that one of their next steps is an embrace of universalism. It's happening right now. False teachers have a playbook, a script, and it reflects what Peter writes in this letter. It's a playbook that we need to be aware of. Sticking our heads in the sand and denying that our favorite writer, teacher, preacher, blogger is a false teacher is dangerous. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, didn't flee from false teachers. We shouldn't make the same mistake. And this is important to Peter because he warns his readers about allowing false teachers into fellowship within the church. He writes that false teachers revel in their depraved lifestyle while enjoying fellowship with the church. When Peter writes, while they feast with you, he's most likely referring to meals that culminated in a celebration of the Lord's Supper. Lord willing, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Before we do, Mike is going to invite baptized believers who are members in good standing at a like-minded evangelical church to participate. But by definition, that, that, that invitation excludes people. But by way of helping us keep our focus on 2 Peter, those who are teaching heresy, universalism, for example, are not invited to join us at this table. If we allowed that, the elders here would be given assent, giving assent to their false teaching. We'd be saying that universalism is, a, is an accepted teaching. And as Peter says in verse 14, false teachers entice unsteady souls. They're greedy. And that greedy doesn't just refer to the desire for material wealth. It's all-encompassing. They're greedy to destroy souls. If they were honest, they'd admit that they've denied Jesus and leave the church. But they're greedy and want to spread their false teaching within the church. So we help protect ourselves and each other by fencing off the table. Peter explains their greed by comparing them to Balaam. You know the story, right? Balak, king of Moab, hires Balaam to curse the Israelites. After warning him a couple of times not to curse the Israelites, God tells Balaam to go, but only to do what he commands. So according to Numbers 22:21. Balaam rose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the princes of Moab. In the very next verse, Moses records that God's anger was kindled because 
Balaam went. This puzzles people. So, so God said go, and then gets mad when Balaam goes. Well, Peter provides the explanation. Balaam was planning on ignoring God's word, doing what Balak wanted, and then getting paid. Peter is saying that the false teachers preying on the church are just like that. They've been taught the word of God, but because they've given themselves over to selfish desires, they willfully deny God's word and pursue outright disobedience while trying to destroy the faith of others, to curse God's people. Peter then writes in verses 17 through 22, These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly that they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. That metaphor of waterless springs and mists driven by a storm, which has parallels in Jude 12 and 13, sets up the image of promising refreshment when in in fact nothing is provided. Jesus refers to Himself as the water of life. And in several places in the Old Testament, wisdom and God's words are called fountains of life and rivers. But here in verse 17, Peter is saying that false teachers do not provide life because they lie about God. In fact, mists driven by storms refers to the weather phenomenon of the haze left after the condensation of clouds into rain that indicates the coming of hot, arid weather. I did not know that before studying this. The words of false teachers do not bring life. They bring the gloom of utter darkness. And circling back to this theme, there's an aspect of God's coming judgment that has been reserved for false teachers because they are promising people freedom as they entice them away from the truth of God's word. As Peter points out, the irony is that they themselves are slaves of corruption. And they're attempting to enslave immature Christians. In his previous letter, Peter tells believers to long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, likely referring to God's Word. In chapter 1 of this letter, Peter urges us to grow in our knowledge of Jesus Christ and to pursue godliness. How do we mature in the faith? How do we remain steadfast? By this. By being faithful in the local church. By being committed to sitting under the preaching of God's Word. By by reading our Bible and going to our Heavenly Father in prayer. By submitting ourselves to the ordinary means of grace. By clinging to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And he's not alone. So are false teachers. Don't take false teachers lightly, brothers and sisters. Peter's teaching here that the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved for those who entice Christians who are immature in the faith reminds me of Jesus' words from Luke 17, verse 2. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than he should cause one of these little ones, believers, to sin. There are grave, eternal consequences for enticing people into sin and away from Jesus And there are grave, eternal consequences for allowing yourself to be enticed into sin and away from Jesus. 
And Peter tells us these consequences begin in this life. Sin consumes. Rebellion against God isn't static. It grows and traps you, enslaves you. Verses 20 and 21 confront us with how dangerous sin and apostasy is. Turning from the true gospel of Jesus Christ after having once claimed to be His comes with a terrifying warning from Peter. Peter is quoting Jesus with the phrase, the last state has become worse for them than the first. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 through 45, Jesus says, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. It tasted of God's goodness. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So first off, demons are associated with waterless places. Now now think back to verse 17 in our text in which Peter compares false teachers to waterless springs. Earlier I said that false teachers are directly connected to and working for the first false prophet and teacher, the devil. I don't know how it can be made any clearer about how dangerous and frightening false teachers are. It scares me when people laugh off or shrug off heresies and false teachers. False teachers are demonic and in open rebellion against God. Moving forward in our text and and keeping in mind Jesus' proverb, what Peter is saying with, with the last state has become worse for them than the first is that the time before they claim to be a Christian is better, filled with more hope, than the time after they tasted and then rejected the Word of God. Those who once experienced the Christian faith but now reject it are unlikely, they are unlikely to return to it again. If they were to genuinely repent... So after tasting of God's goodness and they reject it, if they were then to genuinely repent and place their faith in Jesus, the last state would be better than the first. And that's not what Peter said. Reiterating this, Peter continues in verse 21, for it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after having known it to turn back from the holy commandments delivered to them. Not only will they most likely never place their faith in Jesus, their eternal punishment will now be worse than it would have been. And that's frightening. To think that allowing yourself to be enticed by sin and false teachers to reject the gospel you once claimed to own might be an irrevocable choice and lead to worse punishment. Brothers and sisters, that's a hard truth. And I fought against it as I studied this passage. Like many of you, I have family and friends who once, who once claimed Jesus and who have been enticed away by false teachers. I had to ask myself, do verses 20 through 22 apply to them? And while studying and working on these verses, I had to stop several times and pray for their souls. Beg God to save them. And by God's grace, I'm not going to stop praying for them. And neither should you. Peter then concludes with a verse we briefly looked at earlier. What the true proverb says has happened to them. 
The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. We laugh at the saying, it's like putting lipstick on a pig. But Peter is using that truth to illustrate what's going on here. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter how much you spend on grooming your dog and buying organic dog food. It's still a dog, and it still will eat its own vomit. Nothing it's gone through or enjoyed changes the fact that it's a dog. No matter what false teachers and those enticed away from the truth by false teachers have said in the past or what they've appeared to be in the past, they are demonstrating that they were never God's child. They are proving that they are not God's people. Brothers and sisters in Christ, it points this has not been an easy sermon to preach. And I'm sure that it points it hasn't been an easy sermon to listen to. 2 Peter 2 contains some hard truths. But 2 Peter 2 is a gift from God because with it He's told us His response to those who pervert His words and those who follow false teachers. God is encouraging us to cling to Jesus, to warn us that if we allow ourselves to be enticed by false teachers, destruction awaits us. In a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're going to remind ourselves of what Jesus did for us, how His body was broken so that we might be healed. As you partake, rejoice that your sins have been forgiven, that Jesus paid it all. He poured His blood out for you. And pray for the grace to continue to keep your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. Because in the midst of learning about God's terrifying response to those who pervert His word, we also saw that God protects His own. Our Father loves us. Let's pray. Father, This world is broken. We are surrounded by sin and rebellion. Father, protect us. Protect us from the evil one and bring us safely home to the glorious kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for sending your Son to rescue us. As we celebrate communion in a few moments, make Jesus' love and sacrifice real to us in our hearts. Remind us of how much you love us and cause us to cling tightly to the only hope we have, our precious Lord and Savior. And Father, we ask that if there is anyone here this morning who is still clinging to their rebellion against you, that you will make yourself known to them. Give them the gift of repentance and faith and adopt them into your family, saving them from their sins. And we ask all this in the name of your Son and our King, Jesus Christ. Amen.